and so we'll be finishing up the Minor Prophets. I'm so thankful for the way it's, it's gone, though. At this time, we're getting to many of these rich messianic prophecies, and we'll be hitting these as we, as we approach Christmas. And so I'm thankful and know that I hope this will be helpful. As we look at the book of Haggai, I've said that many of the Minor Prophets are unique in, in some sense, but the book of Haggai brings us into a new period in the Minor Prophets. The ones that we've been discussing are what we would call the pre-exilic minor prophets. What that means is we've talked about that the people of Israel and Judah would be destroyed. The people of Israel by Assyria, the people of Judah by Babylon. And both of these people would be taken away to these other lands in what we, this is called the, the exile. Well, all these other minor prophets are, are prophesying before the exile of Judah. When we get into Haggai and then we look at Zechariah and then Malachi, we're in the post-exilic period of Judah. These prophets come and speak to the people of Israel after they have already returned to Jerusalem and Judea from the exile. And so if you'll open your bulletins there if you haven't already and if you'll take out that folded sheet of white paper and look at those notes I've given you some dates to help you with the the context Haggai also gives us very specific dates and helps us to see where we are in Israel's history and so you'll see that in our calendar Haggai is speaking around his first message is August 29th of 520 you can't get much more specific than that The Jews were taken to Babylon, as we've said in the past, in 586 B.C. Well, in in 538, a guy named Cyrus, if you've read the book of Isaiah, he was prophesied about. He He was a leader of Persia, and Persia conquered Babylon. And upon conquering Babylon, he would be a generous and a, a kind king compared to most in those days. And he would allow the Jews to go back to their land and to rebuild the temple. And so Cyrus comes into power, he defeats Babylon, and he sends many Jews back around 536 B.C. Zerubbabel, who we'll see in the book of Haggai, he returns to Jerusalem approximately 520. Now what happens in these in-between times is that the Jews are called to rebuild the temple. Well, while they're called to do that immediately around 536 when they arrive back, they get discouraged quickly and, and they stop. The the process is hindered. And so around 520, when Zerubbabel comes back, the the temple is still in ruins. Jerusalem is still in ruins. A couple other characters that might just help you in fitting the context here. Ezra returns to the area in 458, Nehemiah in 445. So that will help you just see the context of other books. You you might see a name there, Shesbazar. Bazar led the first exiles back to Jerusalem, and they would begin the the process of rebuilding the temple, but they wouldn't get far. Now, I have Ezra 5.1 in your notes there, and this helps you see just that that Haggai and Zechariah are mentioned in other places. So, Ezra 5.1, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. What was the purpose of Haggai and Zechariah's prophecies? They were charging the people of Israel to rebuild the temple. 
to rebuild it out of the ruins. They had gotten slack in doing what God had called them to do. And so they come and charge the people to rebuild the temple. So as we look at the book of Haggai, he gives us four basically sermonettes. He, he divide, the book is very easily divided into four sermons, prophecies, it challenges to the people of Israel that Haggai gives. But the main point in all of it, and this is what I hope you see, is that Haggai wanted God's people to embrace his faithfulness with active obedience. He wanted God's people to embrace God's faithfulness with active obedience. He wanted them to see that God was going to fulfill his promises, and so they needed to engage in obedience, work. And in obedience, they would find God's blessings. It was in obedience they would find God's blessings. So let's, let's get to the first message. I would ask, I will ask you to stand with me, and we're going to read the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Beginning in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, this is where we get the exact date that I gave you earlier, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You can be seated. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. God, that you would help these messages of Haggai that were given uh, so long ago, Father. May we find relevance to them today. Lord, may we discover what you were saying to your people and what this means for us. Father, may we respond with faith and trust and obedience to your word. Thank you, Father, and in your name we pray. Amen. As we look at these first verses, the first message of Haggai, the first point is consider your ways. Look at your ways. What's going on in your life? The rub for God's people here is that they were doing good things, but not best things, not God things. Look at these verses. These people, in verse 2, say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Yet the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You see, the people were rebuilding their own houses, but they weren't rebuilding the house of the Lord. Now, the, to us, this may not seem very significant. They, they need a place to live themselves, and so they're trying to get that finished before they go and rebuild this house of the Lord. After all, God doesn't dwell just in places, does he? He dwells in our hearts, right? That's what happens with New Testament believers. But when we look at the Old Testament, the temple is extremely significant for God's, God's people. The temple represented his presence among them. And so when the people are not busy rebuilding this temple, it means they aren't concerned about God's presence among them. 
And so this is what is significant. They have their priorities wrong. They're not concerned about God's presence. They're more concerned about their own houses, their own things. Now, what's happened as a result of this? This disobedience has brought about an extreme dissatisfaction among the people. I hope you've seen this throughout the minor prophets, that when you are dissatisfied, dissatisfaction is a key indicator of disobedience. That's why God is telling them, look at your ways, look at what's happening. That should indicate clearly to you that something's wrong in your life. You're not being obedient. Look at verse 4. This is where we begin to see this as we move on. Is it a time for you yourselves to, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of host consider your ways you have sown much and harvested little you eat but you never have enough you drink but you never have your fill you clothe yourselves but no one is warm and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes you see God's people particularly in the old testament Knowing their covenant with Yahweh. Yahweh said, I will, build a co- I will make a covenant with you. If you are obedient, I will bless you. But if you are disobedient, I will curse you. I will not bless you. And so when God's people saw that things around them weren't going well, it should have been a, a sign. Immediately, we need to reevaluate. Are we being obedient to the Lord? And this is why God is saying, consider your ways. Look. If you look closely, you'll see you're not satisfied. It's an indication that you're being disobedient, that you're not doing rightly. A couple of cross-references that I I want you to see here. Jeremiah 2.13 is the first one. In Jeremiah 2.13, Jeremiah is calling out God's people for disobedience. This verse is in your notes. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that that can hold no water. This is very similar to what Haggai has said. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The point is that God's people weren't being obedient, and so God wasn't going to bless them. They were participating in a false sense of worship. Even though in this case, in Haggai, there might not have been an idol or something like that, they were still being disobedient, and for that, they would not receive blessing. Another, another New Test, a different sto- in New Testament story is Luke chapter 10, verses 32, 38 through 42. In this case, you have two women. Jesus has come to a home, the home of uh, Martha and Mary. And he gets there, and one of the ladies comes immediately and sits at his feet and begins to just listen to him as he teaches her. There's another woman, her name is Martha, and while Jesus, when Jesus comes, she immediately wants to get the house clean and make sure that everything is tidy and that it's perfect, even maybe for Jesus. The interesting thing here is that Martha is doing a good thing. She's cleaning. But the problem is she's not doing the best thing. And so for that, even when Martha comes and she complains before Jesus that Mary's not helping, Jesus reprimands her and that says that Mary will be blessed in what she's doing. And so the question that we need to ask as we look at what's happening to God's people here is, are we doing good things but not best things 
We need to ask our, consider our ways, as Haggai has told the, God's people to do, and ask ourselves, are we doing exactly what God's called us to do? You see, God's people weren't doing a bad thing. They were building their own homes. But the problem was they weren't doing the, what God called them to do to build his house, to prioritize his presence. Congregation, you can be doing many good things in your lives. You can be working, trying to provide for your family. You can be consumed, students, with schoolwork or things of that nature. You can be uh, reading. You can be doing good things. You can be watching maybe even good movies. You can be doing good things, but you could be being disobedient by not doing best things, by not prioritizing God's presence in your life, by not prioritizing His will. Men, taking care of your family. Taking care of, your, care of your family is not all about working. And so are you prioritizing God's presence in this way, what he's called you to do? The next section, verses 7 through 10, the question is, what will bring us joy? So they haven't found joy in what they're doing. What's the solution? What do they need to do? What's going to fix their problem? Verses 7 through 10, or verses 7 through 11 Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors." What will bring these people joy? What will solve the dilemma in their midst? What will help the crops to grow properly and for them to be provided for? I want to read to you a quote. I've, I've shared this with you throughout the Minor Prophets, but I want to share it again because I hope it's one that's etched in your memory and that you take with you. You have made us for thyself, and our hearts are weary until they find their rest in you. You have made us for thyself, and our hearts are weary until they find their rest in you. Who has made you? Response. God. God has made you. Where do you find rest? In God. Obedience to God. The interesting thing here is that God is saying, if you work on building my house, I will replenish all that you need. I will give you all that you need. It's not that they need to just sit and meditate. They need to get to work on what God's called them to do. And the same is true for us. God gives us rest when we seek Him properly. God gives us rest, strength, when we seek Him with our whole hearts, when we prioritize our lives in the way that He has called us to. When we seek Him first, and then He teaches us what comes next. And so the people needed to consider their ways. They weren't seeking God first. They weren't prioritizing His presence, which is cl most clear for them in the temple. Are you? Are you prioritizing His presence in every way and letting everything else in your life follow from that? Are you seeking everything in your life in a proper way that reflects your worship of God? I want to read to you one quote from John Wesley. And this quote, if I can, I think they have it to put on the screen. 
This is concerning money, but I thought it was so helpful because I think money is one of the ways in which we can miss what God's called us to do and how we should have our priorities structured. It was very challenging. Wesley says this, If you have a family, seriously consider before God how much each member of it needs in order to have what is needful for life and godliness. And in general, do not allow them less nor much more than you allow for yourself. This being done, fix your purpose to gain no more. I charge you in the name of God, do not increase your substance. As it comes daily or yearly, so let it go. Otherwise, you lay up treasures upon earth. And this our our Lord as flatly forbids as murder and adultery. By doing it, therefore, you would treasure up to yourselves wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. But suppose it were not forbidden, how can you, on principles of reason, spend your money in a way which God may possibly forgive, instead of spending it in a manner which he will certainly reward? You will have no reward in heaven for what you lay up. You will for what you lay out. Every pound you put into the earthly bank is sunk. It brings no interest above. But every pound you give is put into the bank of heaven. And it will bring glorious interest. Yeah, and such as will be accumulating to all eternity. Money is one of the deepest ways that we can get ourselves in trouble and not prioritize the Lord first. And so, are you prioritizing your life as worship of God first in every way these the people here in Haggai that Haggai is prophesying or that he's speaking to that he's challenging they would begin working on the temple within about three and a half weeks after this this challenge they would begin working on it and we'll see the results of that in a few moments but a couple more application points First, don't wait until you have a certain amount in your savings before you start making sacrifices. Again, what God's people had done is they wrongly prioritized. They were taking care of their things, what they felt they needed, before they would take care of God's things. Say, God, I'm just going to get this tidy and right before, and then I'll, I'll come and do what you're wanting me to do. This is where we can get ourselves into trouble. This is where we're disobedient. Don't wait until you have a certain amount in store before you start making sacrifices and giving. Also, are you doing what God desires to you to do? This is not a, a lofty question where you're sitting around pondering and waiting for God to write something in the sky. Simply, according to the word of God, are you doing what God calls you to do? Your priorities for, for my life, my priorities first are the Lord. Second, it's my wife. If I'm not loving her properly, I'm not doing what God's called me to do. And so are you just... And according to the word, doing God's will. Are you seeking him first? And then there may be other things that you need to prioritize that he's called you to do. Haggai's second message in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 is this. Don't be discouraged. Trust God's promises. And this is part of the eschatological hope of the book of Haggai. Again, if you're visiting with us, or if you've just been listening the whole time and just missed it, the word eschatology means in times. Eschatology, in times. So, eschatological hope, Haggai is pointing to what God will bring in the end times. Now, why don't be discouraged? What's the point here? The people of Israel didn't have the resources they had in Solomon's kingdom. 
And so as we look at this, be mindful that many of these people have been there during Solomon's, or when the temple of Solomon was there, and this one is nothing in comparison. So look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 with me. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet, now be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all ye people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Notice the many times it says Lord of hosts. It means he's in control and he will surely do it. And in this place, I will give peace, shalom, declares the Lord of hosts. This message, don't be discouraged. Trust God's promises. They didn't have the resources they used to have. This house paled in comparison to the one they had before. So the people were completely discouraged by what they were building. They couldn't make it as grand as it was before, even if they wanted to. So what do we do? When we can't do something as great as we would like to, God, can you really use it? First, remember that your work has divine purpose. Your work has divine purpose. You see, work is a way of wholly embracing God's promises. It's a necessary expression of faith and hope. To the extent that James says, when we don't have work, our faith is dead. There is no faith. You see, work is necessary. And so, for the Israelites, while they may not have been able to make it as grand as they would like to, their work on this temple was an expression of hope and trust in the promises of God. Was an expression of this. 1 Corinthians 15 58 is a New Testament encouragement in this. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the Lord, when you work in the Lord, your labor is never in vain. One quote concerning this. It is not, therefore, that the present commitment and obedience of this people would bring the future to pass, but rather that present commitment and faith and obedience is the guarantee of entrance to future blessings. You see, this faith, this work was an expression of faith and hope, but it was also a guarantee of the future for this people. That these individuals who were, were working would have an inheritance in God's kingdom. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5-11, through 11, I want to help us understand this. 
Work is both an embracing of hope and a guarantee. What is, it, what is our work our, our, for us? For these people, it was rebuilding a temple. But for us, Crosspoint, visitors, what does New Testament holy work look like? What are we to do? How do we embrace God's promises? Look at these verses in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11. through 11. Beginning in verse 5, for this very reason, Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. This is New Testament work. By the Holy Spirit, you put on virtue, you put on knowledge of God, you put on self-control, you put on steadfastness, you put on godliness and love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. You remember I've used this verse before. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Here's the guarantee. Pay close attention. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The people's work on the temple was an expression of their faith and their hope that the Lord would fulfill his promises. But it was also a guarantee for these people that as they looked at their lives, they knew they were the Lord's and that they were following him in obedience. And the same is true of you. When you were putting on these qualities that we spoke of here in First Peter, in Second Peter, you can be assured Fellow believer, if you're putting on these qualities, if there's fruitfulness in your life, you don't have to question, do I know the Lord? I don't really remember the day that I was saved. That's not the issue. Are you putting on the fruit of the Spirit? Then He knows you. Then He knows you. And you will be richly provided an eternal kingdom of our Lord and, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the guarantee that as you grow in the fruit of the Spirit, you will be with him forever. And so work, the work that God was calling them to do was an expression of faith and it was a guarantee. But look also at what happens. God will accomplish this work for his glory and for their benefit. This is in verses 6 through 9. God says, I will once more in a little while shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. It wasn't the responsibility of the people to make this temple make look more glorious. It was God who would do it. He is going to bring the glory in. Now, there were, there were partial fulfillments of this prophecy that the Haggai is making, that the Spirit is speaking through Haggai. 
a couple of these were in Ezra 6, 8 through 12. Soon after the prophecy of Haggai, the Persians would send finances to rebuild this temple. They would also send some of the things that Babylon had taken out of the former temple and taken to Babylon. They would send those things back to where that would be supplied for the building of the temple. So in a sense, a partial fulfillment of this prophecy is when Persia finances the project and replenishes temple materials. But the great, another partial fulfillment is Mark 13.1. You see this. In your Luke study, if you've been participating in Bible study recently, you've been hearing about Herod. Herod, not even a Jew, by the way, built the temple to incredible glory. Number of years on this building project. And the disciples even were quite impressed with it. They said in Mark 13, 1, as they came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The temple in this time was extravagant to its former glory under Solomon, and many Jews were excited about it. But even this one was not the temple that's being referred to here. There is an ultimate fulfillment of this. You notice that God, he never had trouble accessing gold and silver. He could get it in any time he wanted. But there was a greater fulfillment he had in mind. The people were depressed by the poverty of what they were achieving. And the Lord would remind them that human wealth does not enrich God. What he seeks is not earthly splendor, but a house to fill with his glory. And so in Matthew 12, 6, we see this coming true. Matthew 12, 6, Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is fulfilling this as he goes about and he says, your sins are forgiven. Just by word of mouth, he says, your sins are forgiven. You don't need to go to the temple to get your sins forgiven anymore. I do it. So Matthew 12, 6, he's greater than the temple, but Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The glorious temple that God is speaking of here, that the glory shall be greater than the former, is himself. He is the temple. And so now, we don't go to a building, we go to him. And the really beautiful thing now, if you look through the New Testament, he makes his temple within us. He's, his Holy Spirit dwells in you who believe. And so... The temple is becoming more glorious than it was even now or even under Herod or even under Solomon. This is the greater temple and this is the eschatological hope. This is the long-term hope that we shall dwell with God forever and he will be the temple in our midst. The third message that Haggai teaches, that he challenges, and we won't spend much time on this, is that uncleanness is more contagious than holiness. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. <clears throat> On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. 
Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now when, now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The Lord is saying that as they begin to build the temple, from this point on, he will bless their land. Their obedience is bringing about blessing. But look closely at, at this teaching that Haggai brings. Uncleanness is more contagious than holiness. It's a simple reminder of the law. He's not teaching the priest anything when he does this. He's simply asking them a question as part of a greater, a greater teaching. He asked them, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. The thought here is the priests were sometimes in the temple and they would have to carry a sacrifice. Now that sacrifice was holy. The sacrifice was holy, designated to the Lord. At times that sacrifice would touch their garments. Now the Lord had declared that the garment itself would not make that sacrifice unclean. But what he's asking here is, can you take that garment afterwards and touch stew or something else? And will that make that other, will that garment make the stew or something else holy? Clearly, no, the priests reply. But, Haggai says... If someone is unclean by contact with a dead body and he touches any of these things, does it become unclean? The opposite. And the answer from the priest, it does become unclean. The picture here is simply like a, a disease. I don't know about many of you, but some of you caught the, the plague that went around Crosspoint over the last few weeks. And when, when I caught it and I was sick, we were a little bit concerned that Katie might get it. But there was never this sense where I was like, hey, let me like, stay close to you so that maybe I might get better like being close to you. Let me drink after you and that might make me healthy again. That's just not the way it works. And that's what's happening here. There's something clean, and when it touches something else that's unclean, it doesn't make it clean. But that thing that is unclean will make something else unclean. The problem with God's people is that their disobedience made them unclean. And so they thought that, may, I'll just do more. I just need to work harder. This is what they're doing. They're working in the field harder. They're trying to make things better. But everything they do, even when they sacrifice, because they're unclean, their sacrifice is unclean. They can't get to God. They can't make it better because they're unclean. And so everything they touch is unclean. And so what the Lord is saying is, I will make it better. I will do this. I will make it clean. I will bless you. From this day on, only by his grace, the Lord says, I will bless you. 
Now, the beautiful thing about this is it's a perfect picture of the gospel. You see, we're all unclean in our sin. And our good works are stained by our sinfulness. And so we can't do enough in our sin to get to God. This is what was wrong with the people. This is what's wrong with us in our sin. We can't do enough. We can't make up for all our evil. Healthy people don't make sick people better. And so what we see is that God saves us and makes us holy through faith. This is Ephesians 2, straight out of Ephesians 2. God saves us, makes us holy through faith. And in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The only way you can do works acceptable to God is through the new birth. Through the new birth, through the Holy Spirit. This is what would happen to God's people. Only by His grace would they be able to do good. Would they no longer be stained by their own sinfulness? And the same is true for you. If you're visiting with us or if you've even been here a lot and you've never been reborn through the Holy Spirit, you can't do good enough. You can't work your way to God. It's only by His Spirit. It's only by His grace. The last message that Haggai brings, the fourth message, it's addressed directly to Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, as we saw in the beginning of Haggai, is the governor in the area at this time. He was the, the, the head governmental leader for the area at this time. At this time, we don't have a king in place in Jerusalem. And so he's the head governmental leader. And the last message we see from Haggai is that God keeps his promises. Follow along with me in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, pay close attention to these verses. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now this is a very interesting portion of scripture and can be easily confused. So let's try to clarify this. If you recall, the line of David... The King David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had promised, I will continue your house, your throne, forever. God had been promising that he would continue this house forever. He made this promise to David. Well, listen to this verse in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. One of the last kings in Judah, before they were conquered by Babylon, was a man in this verse. He had done evil before the Lord. But he was in the line of David. So listen to what the Lord says. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. Though he were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. The signet ring represents promise. It represents entrusting with his promises, with his authority. 
But what God is saying is this last king in the line of David, because of the evil, his evil and the evil of the nations, God tears him off. He tears off this king, this last king in the line of David at this time. And so at this point, there is no ruler from the house of David, which God promised, I will keep a ruler from the house of David. And so as God promises this to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was in the line of David. And so what God is doing is he was putting back this line of David. He is restoring the line to authority. He is renewing his promise that he would send someone from the line of David to restore, to save his people. Now let's read some other verses to help make sense of this. Matthew 1, 12-13, Luke 3, 27 are in the genealogies of Jesus. And Zerubbabel is there. Jesus coming through the line of David, Zerubbabel is there. And so as God promises to Zerubbabel that he will make him his signet ring, he is renewing his promise that he will continue this lineage. And this is why as Jesus comes, you have so many people trying to make him a king. If you read the Gospels, you see they're trying to crown him. They're trying to make him this type of king. But as we continue to read the Gospels, you realize that Jesus is not the type of king that the people hoped for. He was a different type of king. John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus came in this line of kings through the line of David. But he was a different type of king. His kingdom was of another realm. He was a king over all things. And so, this passage about Zerubbabel, the significance of this is that God renews his promise to his people. That he will send a savior. That he will send one in the line of David to restore and to rule over his people forever. As we, as we close out the book of Haggai, let me say this. The second, this temple that Haggai is challenging the people to rebuild, it was completed in 515. If you look at Ezra chapter 6, the second temple was completed. And so the messages of Haggai and then Zechariah, which we'll hit next week, which he challenges the people, get on this, be obedient to the Lord. They were obedient and they completed this temple in 515. But... As we approach the Advent season, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and as we think about the book of Haggai, I hope that you'll recall God's faithfulness. God keeps his promises. This is the significance of the book, that these people have come back to Jerusalem and they have nothing. Jerusalem is in complete ruins, yet God charges them, work, I'm with you, be obedient, and then says, I will keep all my promises that I've made in the past. I will bring my servant. I will bring the king. He will come and he will restore his people. If you're not a believer, I hope you'll see and respond to God who's offering relationship with him. He's offering forgiveness of sins, eternal hope through faith in the death and resurrection of his son. And without this, you will suffer unmediated love, which is holy wrath. 
without submitting to his son and the forgiveness of sins through the father, you will suffer unmediated love, which is holy wrath. But believer, I hope that you'll recall his promises, his faithfulness. I'm going to invite Stephanie to come up. That as you engage in obedience and trust in him, he will bless you. He will bless you. This is where the blessings of God are found. That as you bow to him and trust him with your entire life, with all that you are. This is where his blessings are. This is where his joy is. Are you embracing his promise? That he will come for you? That he will send his son to return again? He has sent him once. He has fulfilled the the latter portion of the scripture. He has fulfilled it. He will come again. Are you embracing this daily through work, through obedience, through putting on virtue, through putting on love? This is our holy work. That in all that you do, you're growing in faith and love and devotion to him. And so this morning, the invitation, as it has been, is whatever you need it to be. How do you need to be embracing God faithfully, trusting Him? I hope that you trust His promises completely and that you're entirely devoted to Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your grace. Lord, that You love a people who disobey you, Lord, who entirely reject you. We are unclean, Father, yet by your grace you make us clean and you make our works acceptable to you. And not only that, you make them beautiful to you through your own love. Father, thank you that through faith we are your precious children. Thank you for your deep love for us. Lord, help us to see how we need to prioritize you in different ways in our lives. Make you first, seeking your presence first, Lord. Loving our families rightly and loving people who don't know you rightly. God, I pray that your people would bow to you. Lord, thank you that you're a faithful God. And Lord, you bless us. Thank you that you give us joy even in difficulty. We praise you that you're a great God. Lord, for those who may not have relationship with you, who continue to walk in disobedience to you, maybe even a person who has submitted to you in some form in the past, Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction. Lord, that they would turn to you. That we would remember that you have made us for yourself. Lord, in our hearts, we will be weary until we find our rest in you. Thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand.